0: Good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. This summer, we've been going through a topical series called We Are His, where we examine the place that we in the Village Church have in God's plan to make disciples of all nations. Today, we'll be starting a new section of our series where we will examine the seven key distinctives of the Village Church and why we believe that those distinctives are central to our mission. Today, we will look at our number one distinctive as a church, which is biblical authority. I want you to imagine something heavy for a minute. I want you to imagine that you're on your deathbed. You know that's a happy thought to start the morning off with. Imagine that you are clear-minded, that you're conscious, and that you are with a person who is very dear to you. Maybe a best friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a child. And you have something to say to them before you die. What would you say? Do you think that you would talk to them and shoot the breeze about the latest NFL football game or a new song that just came out? What do you think would make the list? Or do you think that you'd stay focused on the things that really matter, things that eternally matter, things that you want to make sure that this person remembers after you're gone. What stories would you tell? What would you want this person to take away when they leave the room and will never meet you again on this side of heaven? Maybe not quite as dramatic as that, but this morning we're actually going to get a glimpse at something similar to that from the Apostle Paul, and it's very interesting to me what he says to his pastor friend Timothy. This morning you heard the scripture reading, which is from 2 Timothy 3, 10-17, and 2 Timothy was actually the last book that Paul wrote before he was executed in Rome in 64 A.D., He's writing to a pastor friend of his named Timothy, and he's giving him advice and instruction on how to lead the church once Paul is gone. Paul is convinced that he will be put to death very soon. Towards the end of this letter, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Since Paul is convinced of this, what does he tell Timothy? And as you can probably guess, it has something to do with biblical authority. This is one of the last things he wants to communicate to Timothy before he dies. In previous chapters of this book, just to give you a quick rundown, he tells Timothy other things like this Fan into flame the gift that God, or the gift of God, which is in you. Through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self control. He also gave him this advice Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And he told him this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then in the book, he warns him about the godlessness that will occur on the last days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappreciable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. It's a pretty terrible list to be on right there. And it is just this warning passage. It's right after this warning passage that Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 that we have our passage this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, That happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is telling Timothy about the godlessness that will occur in the last days. And starting in verse 10, our passage here today, he gives Timothy the solution on how to avoid godlessness. Paul says, Follow my example. Paul says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and keep doing that. Keep following my example. Paul seems like a pretty solid guy, probably a guy that most of us would want to imitate. He doesn't approve of murder anymore like he used to. He's not a religious hypocrite like he used to be since he met Jesus and he gives Timothy this list of things to imitate. Now, we might look at that and we might say, wow, that's pretty conceited of Paul, right? Follow me, follow my example, imitate me. Paul thinks he's so great, right? Well, not really. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. So we know that Paul doesn't mean it that way, in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So it's not that Paul wants them to imitate him because he's so great. It's because he's confident enough in his conduct that he's imaging Christ well. He means that God has produced some amazing fruit in his life, and he wants Timothy to mimic his example so he can bear fruit after Paul is dead. Let me ask you a question. Who are you imitating? Who influences your actions? It Could be a podcaster or a cable news anchor or a friend or a spouse or a coworker. And whoever you are imitating, do they cause you to act like the good things on Paul's list or the things that came just before that? Do you imitate someone you should be imitating that leads you to Christ or someone that you probably shouldn't? Paul is aware that Timothy will be around influences, and he wants to make sure that Timothy picks the right ones. And he's going to get to how you do that in just a minute. Not only that, but Paul wants Timothy to imitate not only his conduct, but his sufferings. Look at verse 11. He wants Timothy to imitate his, the good things that we saw on that list, but then he goes on and he says, and my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them the Lord had rescued me. Paul is referring back here to something that happened in Acts 13 and 14. At Antioch, Paul preaches in the synagogue, and his message is mostly rejected by the Jewish leaders, but the Gentiles, a lot of them, accept it. The Jews persecute Paul and drive him out to the next city, and Paul wipes the dust off his feet, that's where we get that phrase. At the next city, Iconium, after Paul preached to many people, many of them believed, but the Jews plotted to stone him, so he fled to Lystra. In Lystra, Paul heals a crippled man, and the crowds want to offer sacrifices to him and Barnabas because they think that they are gods. Good pagan people there. And the Jews come from the previous two towns, and they actually stone Paul in Lystra and leave him for dead. Once Paul recovers and after a trip to Jerusalem in Acts 15, he actually returns to these three cities to strengthen the churches that he planted. And in Acts 16, Paul returns to Lystra, to the very city where he was stoned and left for dead, the very place where he planted a church and it was probably being persecuted. If they were willing to do this to Paul, some out-of-town guy, what do you think they were doing to the people who lived there full-time? And it's here. In this town of Lystra, where these people stoned him, that he meets a young disciple named Timothy. Lystra was Timothy's hometown. Timothy is the product of the church that Paul founded who witnessed his persecution. And now he's reminding Timothy, he's telling Timothy, hey, remember what your people did to me? (laughs) Remember all that stuff that you witnessed when you were just a young Christian when I planted the church in your hometown. He's saying, imitate that. Paul's not delusional here about the Christian life. He knows that it brings hardships and sufferings. Yet he acknowledges that God is good through it all. And let me just quickly say this. I know we're talking about biblical authority today and we'll, we'll definitely get there, but I just wanted to This, you do not know the fruit that God will bring out of your sufferings. You don't know. You may never know on this side of heaven. Paul was stoned in Timothy's hometown, and his persecution there produced a pastor and a church that would continue Paul's work after he was gone. Paul says, Which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. He doesn't promise Timothy a life free of suffering, but he does promise that the Lord will deliver you. Until he doesn't. <laughs> Paul's sitting in a Roman jail cell when he's writing this. And as we already saw later in the letter, he's pretty confident this is going to be the end. He's about to be executed, and he knows it. And yet he can still t- tell Timothy, yet the Lord delivered me from them well, what is Paul talking about here? I don't think he's talking about just temporal deliverance. I think he's talking about eternal deliverance is his main concern here. And he says this, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow. I doubt that very many people choose that as their life verse. I doubt that that makes it on very many calendars or greeting cards. You're not going to see that very many places. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does anyone feel that today? I hope so. I hope so. Not necessarily that you feel persecution, but that you feel the desire to live a godly life. Paul is saying that if you desire to obey God, if you desire to read the Bible and do what it says and put it into practice, guess what? You will be persecuted. Jesus said so in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It's not that persecution is necessarily a good thing in and of itself, but persecution is a natural consequence of godly obedience coming into contact with an evil world. It's going to happen. It doesn't say that you might be persecuted. It says you will be persecuted. Did you know that today, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world? It's true. Open Doors USA states that 360 million Christians worldwide live in places where they experience high levels of persecution. That's one in seven believers worldwide. In 2019, the British government commissioned a report on religious persecution and also found that Christianity is the world's most persecuted religion. And we were told so. And Christians have been enduring persecution for 2,000 years. Have you been persecuted for desiring to live a godly life? Maybe people have spread lies and rumors about you. Maybe people talk behind your back. Maybe people say mean things about you on the internet. Maybe you lost a business opportunity or lost a promotion or even lost a job or got passed over for some business opportunity. I really want you to examine this because if you have never been persecuted, if you've never felt just the anger from another person because you're a Christian, if you've never experienced anything, if you've never given up anything, for Christ and paid for your obedience, I want you to consider this. In what meaningful sense are you really desiring to live a godly life before others? Simply living a godly life doesn't bring persecution, living a godly life in the sight of others brings persecution. You can practice godliness in solitude and it won't cost you much. You can be a Christian on Sundays and a pagan in the rest of the week and it won't cost you very much. Being a Christian in public is what brings persecution. Being a Christian in front of others who don't want to see it. And I think what Paul is saying here, this refutes all arguments that Christianity is just a private affair. It's something you do in quiet, on your own. Christianity is meant to be lived out loud. We're meant for people to see our godliness and good deeds. Because as we heard last week, every village needs Jesus, right? How are they going to know about him? Unless we tell them, and unless we show them. How are you living a life to avoid appearing godly in order to avoid persecution? I don't think Paul is saying that we should seek out persecution, necessarily. But I think what he is saying is that persecution by itself is not a good enough reason to compromise our witness to the world. He goes on. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do you admit that there are evil people in the world? today the world today doesn't like to admit that we're born sinful that i was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me david says we like to believe people are basically good that it's systems and structures and these big amorphous things that are the reason why people do that we don't like to think that people are bad from the start paul says that there are evil people and more than that that there are imposters, people who seem godly and are actually actively trying to deceive. And these people go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Some people are just deceived. They don't know any better. And they need a Christian to explain the way to them more clearly so that they can respond. But some people are being deceived because they like it. They don't want to be confronted with the truth. They would rather live in ignorance than face the reality that we are all born sinners and enemies of God in need of a savior. And then there are others, Paul says, who are the deceivers. They know that they are leading people into error. We want to believe the best in people. We want to give people the benefit of the doubt, don't we? But don't be fooled, church. There are those out there who are intentional imposters actively trying to deceive us. And it takes Christian discernment in order to be able to tell the difference. Paul tells Timothy, do not be deceived by imposters and evil people, but live a godly life. Even if that means you'll be persecuted for it. And he goes on. But as for you, now Paul shifts and now gives a charge to Timothy on how to not be like the deceivers and false teachers. How is Timothy supposed to accomplish that, all these things that he's given us so far? Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There it is. There's our center for this morning. How are we able to keep from falling away? How are we able to avoid being deceived like Paul has just talked about? How is it that we are to endure persecution when we have been told that it is certain that it will come? We are to continue in what we have firmly believed. And where does the content of that belief come from? It comes from the people who taught us, who were steeped in the sacred writings of Scripture. In the Greek here, the word whom is plural, meaning that Timothy learned it from more than one person. He's probably talking about himself, but he's probably also talking about his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And it is this set of teachings from the scriptures that we are able to be made wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. You want to continue in faith? Read your Bible. You want to avoid error and false teachers? Read your Bible. You want to endure sufferings and persecutions when they come? Read your Bible. But it's not just the act of reading that does it. It's not just opening it up and flipping to some pages and just going through the motions reading. Just reading doesn't accomplish anything. You can open the Bible and just go through it and it will accomplish nothing. We need to read with the eyes of faith. Paul says the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because reading with the eyes of faith is how the power of scripture works. Here at the Village Church, our number one value is biblical authority. And I think it's for a very simple reason. God gave us the Bible to be our authority. God governs the world and the church through his word, his written word he didn't give us the scriptures so that we'd have some nice bedtime stories to tell our kids or some sacred fiction that would be archetypes of some deeper truths that god wanted to communicate he gave us the scriptures because it pleased god to give us a written record of his word we can boil down our doctrine of scripture into this phrase When scripture speaks, God speaks. The Bible is nothing less than God's word written. Here at the Village Church, we take God at his word. And we believe what the Bible says about itself, that it's the word of God. Read what Peter says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or look at what Jesus says in John 17. Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. Here at the village, we believe that every word of the Bible is true. Theologians call this doctrine biblical inerrancy. Inerrancy is just a fancy word that means the Bible does not error. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews says. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. An imperfect Bible is contrary to God's perfect character. In our partner packet, it says this. We believe the Bible to be the inspired and only word and revelation of God. Inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and God-breathed. Being the final authority for all matters of life. Now, I say that, and immediately the skeptic pops in your head. Well, what about this verse, or what about that chapter? Doesn't God commit you know, all sorts of atrocities in the Old Testament, and all this stuff, all these arguments you've heard repeated on the internet? These are nuanced topics that require prayer and study, I understand, and guess what? I teach this thing called the Apprentice Academy here at the Village Church, where we dive deep into these topics, and I would encourage you to apply. I love what Martin Luther said. The Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. The Holy Spirit's not a skeptic. The author of the book knows what the book means. The Bible isn't one of those postmodern books where everyone can assign their own meaning to what it says. The Bible is true. And the Bible is clear to make you wise unto salvation. And the Bible has authority. You know what? The Bible would be true whether you believed it or not, whether I believed it or not. We have a lot of skeptics today, don't we? People who think that they are their own authority and that they don't need another authority. And I think that most of today's problems can be boiled down into two fundamental errors, the error of authority And the error of autonomy. We're told to trust the experts today, right? We're told to trust the authorities. Trust the experts. Trust the politicians. Trust the doctors, the public health officials, the foreign policy experts. Trust the teachers, the preachers. Trust the social media influencers. Trust the rappers, the actors, the billionaires. Trust people's experience. Trust anyone And everyone, except the Bible. You can't trust the Bible, people say. Because the Bible's a backwards book, they want you to think. That it's a transgressive book. That it's an oppressive book. Think about the most controversial verses today from the Bible. The ones that you would have the hardest time opening up and sharing with a friend. The ones that the world has the hardest time as seeing authoritative. I'll give you a sample. I don't care. I believe the Bible. Mark ten six. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's our word again. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. How about John fourteen six? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How about Matthew 5, 44? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. I could go on, I mean... Just right there is enough to get me canceled, I'm sure. Just reading what the Bible says, that's fine. From our culture's perspective, the Bible says some pretty controversial things. But you know what? Our Bible is not measured by the standards of our culture. It's measured by the perfect standard of God's character. You can probably think of a few verses right now that you don't like. Maybe some of the ones that I read, maybe you've got some other ones on your mind maybe your life would be is easier if the bible didn't say certain things and the next time you come across a verse that makes you pause and think that way i think it's important to be honest with yourself so next time you're reading and you come across a verse like that that makes you pause that you don't like i want you to ask yourself this question does that reveal a problem with the bible or does that reveal a problem with me Am I in the position to critique the Bible? Or is the Bible in a position to critique me and my way of thinking and acting? This is why as a church, we preach through books of the Bible, which is our normal way of uh, preaching. We took the summer off to go through a topical series, which I think is fine, which I think is great. But our norm is to go through, (laughs) what I say? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good to go through books of the Bible because you know what, those verses and passages that I just read, when you're preaching through books of the Bible it's kind of hard to skip the controversial stuff it's kind of hard to just pass over the verses that you don't like that it might be hard for a preacher to stand up here and talk about or to sit in the congregation and listen to we have had a lot of people move in and out of the church the past 14 years. High bags. And I would just encourage you guys that if you're planning on moving to Tennessee for some unknown reason, um, I'll give you this advice. Find a church that preaches through books of the Bible. We're doing this topic series this summer to remind ourselves of our vision and values, and I think that's fine. But I think that in the fall when we jump back into Ecclesiastes, which I'm really excited about, right, that you want to confront the hard things that the Bible says. And when you get to pick and choose, you're not gonna do anybody any favors. Each one of us has an authority over someone. Each one of us also submits ourselves to an authority under someone or something we trust. Each one of us gets our ideas from somewhere. The question is, do you get your ideas from the Bible or somewhere else? There is no third option. It's one of those two things. We don't get to define our own authority. We don't get to remake God in our own image. We either believe the Bible or we don't. We either take God at his word or we don't. The Bible is our highest authority, and all other authorities come from God himself. When Jesus was on trial standing before Pilate, he said, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Specifically, we believe that God has structured the units closest to our lives with authority from him. Pastors have authority over the church. Husbands have authority over the family, and parents have authority over their children. But these authorities are not ends in themselves. They are derivative authorities. When authority in the church or in the home ceases to be biblical, it ceases to speak for God. As one of your pastors, I can just tell you that your pastors work hard to make sure that we're leading the church in a biblical way. But if that authority ever strays from the Bible, it no longer leads with the blessing of God. And you have an obligation as a Christian to resist unbiblical authority. Here at the Village Church, we have a high view of the Bible. This is why we have a Bible reading plan that we go through every year as a community. Now there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to read it in a year. Maybe you fell behind this year, and you didn't want to continue because you were so far behind, that's fine. Just pick up where you left off. Read the Bible through in two years. Do it in three years, I don't care. Just read the Gospels. Read the Psalms. Read the New Testament. Read something. If we're going to claim as Christians that the Bible is the inspired word of God, I think it's pretty important that we know what it says. Many Christians claim that the Bible is the word of God and they've never read it all the way through. The Bible isn't just a set of good ideas. It's a set of God's ideas, and it's his authoritative word. So my hope is that as long as you're in this church community, that you're surrounded by people who are pleading with you to open the pages of scripture. Not because we're just trying to keep God happy but because we're a community of people who really believe what we find there. And it's not just an obligation, it's our joy and our peace and our delight. And it's the strength that we need for each day. It's the hope that we need to follow Jesus in this world and raise families in a dark place. We're a culture that will spend hours debating in restaurants and coffee shops and trying to persuade others you've got to try this. I've got this new diet going on, or I've got this new social media person that you've got to follow. I can stand up here and plead with you to open your Bible, and you might think, this guy just wants me to do my duty and just make God happy so I don't go to hell. Village Church, we point you to the Bible because God is the greatest thing in the universe. And if we ever find something greater, would you, I'll let you know, and if you please let me know, I would appreciate it. But for now, we stick to the Bible. I, I just want you to like imagine this. Like, take a step back for a second. Just, I just want you to imagine this. Okay? The God of the universe communicates with human beings. Who made the stars and made the planets and made all the stuff that we see. And he didn't just communicate with people. like, He inspired people to write things down that we can read. If that's true, and I believe that it is, if that's true, that makes that book the most important book in the world. And nothing can be more valuable than spending time reading and studying that book. So that's my encouragement to you when it comes to authority. The second error is the error of autonomy. We value individual determination and choice, don't we? That's a very American idea, self-determination, self-autonomy. The problem is that it's not biblical. You didn't choose where you were born or when, or who your parents were, or what life experiences you've had. You haven't been autonomous from the most significant facets of your life. And yet we lie to ourselves and we wish that we could determine our own destiny apart from God without any input from God. As if we could decide how the world works best. So let me say this. Not one of us in here is autonomous. Not one. When God gives us a command in his word, it's not because he just arbitrarily threw a dart at the cosmic dartboard and said, "Oh, don't lie. That sounds good. I'll I'll make that a command." The commands of God are not arbitrary. Because they reflect who God is and how the world works best. God's commands actually give us a picture on how life works best. This is why, when you surrender to God's commands in His Word, you also surrender your autonomy. Verse 16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Not some. But all of it. The word here for breathed out could also be translated expired. God expired the Scriptures. They came from his mouth. They are his very breath. His word inspired by his spirit, which spirit and breath in the Greek are actually the same word. The scriptures don't approximate something God wants. They aren't sort of close to what God said. They're exactly what he said. He inspired them and he expired them. Theologians call this verbal plenary inspiration, meaning God inspired the very words in the text, not just the ideas. They're exactly the way God wanted them. And the goal of Scripture is to equip us for good works, that we would perform the task that God has given each one of us to do. So as we wrap it up here, I just want to say a few things. I really want our church to be marked as a collection of people who really deeply know and care about the Bible. We need to be steeped in this book that we say we believe. Without the Bible, we would not know God. We would not know his name. We would not know his story, and we would not know his son. And it's my prayer and the prayer of your pastors that we would be a people marked by a knowledge and a love and a joy for the scriptures, not just parts of it, but the whole thing. When Paul tells Timothy that he has been acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood, at that time, much of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Paul's talking here about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, he argued with the Jews proving that Jesus was the Christ. So whatever book you're in, Old Testament or new, guess what? Jesus is there. God inspired all of it. And so we, as a people, can be confident that this book that he's given us is actually what he intended us to have. And that brings us to our good news statement this morning. We want to give you good news every morning uh, that we hear the Bible read and the Bible preached because we believe that God is good and he's given us good things. And so God has given us the Bible as our highest authority so that we can know the salvation that we have in Christ and the good works that he's given us to do. And so as we go forward from here, church, I pray that you would have uh, an increased confidence in the scriptures, that it is uh, the word of God that he's given us, uh, increased desire to read them and know what they've said, and to speak about them and communicate them to others and those around you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, just your goodness to communicate to us, your children. And Lord, I pray that uh, as a church community, Lord, that we would continue to be people of your book, of your word, your written word to us that is good and helpful to make us wise unto salvation in Christ. Lord, we admit, we confess that it's all about him and that it's about the work that you've given us to do. I pray that your word by your spirit would continue to equip us for all the things that you've given us um, to do, and that you would continue to strengthen us as we go forth from here to face a world that needs to hear the message contained in your word. We thank you and we praise you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.